Hello folks, this is JB with Not By Works Ministries. I just wanted to give a short intro to the podcast you're about to listen to. Uh, from time to time, I have the privilege of joining a small group Bible studies or sometimes uh, classroom settings at a, at a Bible college or even Sunday school classes at churches where folks will invite me in to kind of be part of a Q&A and dialogue with them for uh, a period of time. And such was the case uh, on Monday night, November the 14th. I had the privilege of uh, using Zoom through the wonders of technology to join about 15 folks in a small group study. Uh, not all of them in the same room, actually scattered around uh, the country. But man, we had a wonderful dialogue tonight. It ended up lasting an hour and a half or more, I think, and uh, just uh, really enjoyed the discussion. And I thought, with their permission, I would go ahead and post this so that you guys could benefit from our dialogue as well. And they said that would be that would be fine. So just wanted to kind of give you that intro so you know what you're listening to. Uh, this was a Q&A session that I did with a, a small group Bible study on uh, Monday night the 14th. And I might mention too that if you have a group of folks that meet together regularly or if you'd like to gather a group of folks together, I would love to join you for a Q&A. Uh, I do this uh, quite often, sometimes by phone and sometimes by Zoom or Skype or some of those uh, technological uh, services. And man, it would be a great privilege of mine uh, to do that for you. So feel free to reach out by email. Uh, again, it's all schedule permitting. I do stay pretty busy, but if we can pick a time that works for my calendar and yours, it would be my honor to engage in a Q&A with, uh, with a group of folks. So feel free to reach out. But just wanted to give you that short intro, and now uh, I wanted to pass you on here to this podcast. I hope you enjoy, and as always, uh, God bless. So yeah, once again, I, I appreciate you welcoming welcoming me into your uh, your meeting, and um, you know, love to just open the floor to your questions, either about uh, anything related to the end times or the Book of Revelation, or really any theological topic. I'd love to just kind of uh, stimulate some dialogue here with uh, with some questions. Anybody have anything on their mind? I've got maybe a simple one that uh, is maybe a housekeeping question about uh, you talked in one of your presentations on uh, the North coming down, attacking Israel, and the West would come and uh, defend Israel, uh, and uh, that would be uh, he would be directed by the Antichrist. The West would be, where is that? You said it was in Daniel somewhere. Yeah, so uh, in the back of my book, uh, What Lies Ahead, I have a uh, appendix that's called a sequential order of end times events. And so the, the first part of your question uh, relates to the Ezekiel 38 and 39 battle, okay. uh, which is obviously what we commonly yeah. call the Battle of Gog and Magog. But the Western Alliance, we get that from Daniel 11, 40 to 33. And I just missed it. My wife sneezed. <laughs> that's okay. So, yeah, Daniel 11, 40 to 43 is where we see this uh, group of nations from the West coming together. In my uh, speculation, they're probably led by the future Antichrist, and they invade uh, Egypt. And then um, this Western Alliance... Uh, after invading Egypt, according to Daniel 1144, uh, sort of raises a protest against the northern aggressors. Uh, and then we know that God is the one who intervenes and causes 
the uh, Northern Alliance that came against Israel to be defeated, but this um, Western Alliance basically takes the credit, if you will, and, and sort of says that they're the ones that, you know, stopped people from invading Israel. And I think that's what propels the Antichrist to world fame and sets the stage for him uh, brokering a peace treaty, which we then get from Daniel 9, 27. That would be the three and a half years of peace with Israel. What's that? Comes out of that. Would that be the three and a half years of peace? Yeah, and, and the, the three and a half years for Israel. In fact, let me see if I can uh, share my screen. Uh, just right. because it'd be nice to have a, a chart up here. Uh, I've got to open it up first. But uh, yeah. By the way, that that... I think you guys are aware of, but I never know, you know, since I don't know you guys, I don't want to assume anything, but uh, a lot of people, let's see, this one will work here. Uh, let's go. Uh, yeah, a lot of people kind of are confused about the nature of uh, that three, the first three and a half years. We do tend to call it three and a half years of peace, as you'll see. Uh, so let me... Uh, Let's see where I can share my screen. Yeah, I only saw in your book you had uh, Daniel 9, 24 through 27 referenced. Okay. Uh, that was in the, it was in the 490 plan. So I don't know if everybody can see that now. Oh, yeah. So notice how in the, th in the seven-year tribulation there, right in the middle of the screen, we say three and a half years of protection. I think that's a better term than peace because uh, the everything on earth during that seven years is going to be total chaos. And you've got the wrath of God coming against the wrath of Satan. You get the seal judgments that start right at the beginning. And all we mean by that is that Israel for three and a half years nationally is protected from any type of invasion. Um, so there's not like, a, you know, a global war nation against nation during that time, but what happens at the midpoint is Daniel is uh, as Daniel says is the Antichrist breaks the treaty and demands that everyone worship him and he begins to persecute the Jews intensely and that's when Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse and when you see that happening uh, speaking to the Jews uh, he you need to head for the hills flee for your lives you know it's, it's going to be tough so it's it's not necessarily three and a half years of peace on earth per se but it's three and a half years of peace in terms of international conflict if that makes sense what is going to happen to that 144,000 during the second half of the trib so they're protected right De uh, revelation 7 so they can't be killed uh, so they are, in my view, uh, witnessing throughout the entire seven-year period. So okay. uh, it's my view that uh, Jesus, you know, he promised in Matthew 23, I'm sorry, Matthew 24, that prior to his return, everyone on earth will have heard the gospel. Um, and so uh, I believe that's the purpose of the 144,000 is to go to the uttermost parts of the earth and make sure that everyone on earth during that seven years, here's the gospel. Uh, some will believe. Uh, those who believe are uh, fall into two categories. Either they endure to the end and are the ones that inherit the kingdom, or they are martyred, beheaded. Um, 
but in any event, uh, many will believe. Uh, and then those who don't believe, of course, uh, are the goats. Many of them will be killed too, just from the natural disasters and the wrath of God and all kinds of other things. But the ones who survive that are unbelievers are the goats to whom Jesus says, depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So, so. Isn't there also um, an angel that flies that fulfills that prophecy as well about preaching the gospel to the whole world? Yeah, there is. Uh, that's in, uh, I think it's Revelation 15. I'm going to grab my Bible just because it's easier for me to use that than to change screens. <laughs> Good question. Good question. That was my next one. Really? <laughs> and does he uh, talk? I just taught on that up in Duluth, actually. Yeah, um, I just heard it today. So, uh, but yeah, that's Revelation. It's the the angel that is, uh, you know, setting the stage in, in the final moments there. But um, so let's see. We see. Um, Maybe it's not 15, maybe it's 14. Yeah, so the Revelation 14, 14 and 15 are kind of the prelude to the final harvest and the, the, the bold judgments. So remember, uh, let me put up another uh, screen here. This reflects those judgments. So if you see the bold judgments there, it's not really drawn to scale. The bold judgments all take place in the, in the final few days of the tribulation, prep, preparing for the Battle of Armageddon. And, and the bold judgments, of course, start in chapter 16. So chapters 14 and 15 of Revelation are setting the stage for that. And you get to verse 6 in Revelation 14. And John says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So I think that's uh, God's supernatural way of, in the 11th hour, reaching all those whom the 144,000 did not reach. Um, because we do have that promise in Matthew 24 that Jesus says, you know, this gospel will be preached to the uttermost parts of the earth, and then the end will come. Gotcha. So does that are, make sense? are all non-believers going to uh, be, after the seven years, be thrown into the lake of fire, or are some of them still going to be around because... It's not the end of the millennium. No, uh, at the end of the tribulation, as Jesus describes in Matthew 25, there's only two options, sheep and goats. And if you're a goat, you're an unbeliever, you are cast in the lake of fire. So at the start of the millennium, with what you see there in yellow on the screen, uh, everyone on earth alive is a believer. So it's kind of the opposite of after the rapture. After the rapture, which you see on the far left of the screen, Everyone left on earth in that moment is an unbeliever. Um, after the second coming, everyone left on earth is a believer. And then as they have children and the earth begins to be repopulated after the devastation of the tribulation, those children who are born, like all human beings, are born dead in their trespasses and sins, and they need to be saved by faith alone and Christ alone. And over time, many will be saved, but some won't. So that by the end of the thousand years, you have another large contingent of unbelievers that will be partnering with Satan when he's released from prison for that final battle at the end of the millennium. So I've always thought and heard that those who receive the mark have no chance for salvation. 
Is that correct? After the after they received it? Because yeah, it's. I wouldn't say it that way because it's a part of a descriptive passage of scripture. It's not prescriptive or instructive. It's just describing the reality. And the reality is that anyone who takes the mark of the beast will end up in hell. But it's not it's not that they end up in hell because they took the mark of the beast. Anyone who ends up in hell uh, is there for the same reason, unbelief. They've never trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. So based on comparing scripture with scripture and our understanding of the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, and then connecting that with the statement in John in Revelation that those who take the mark will not be saved, we can conclude that only unbelievers are the ones who take the mark. No believer is going to take the mark. Because I had, as I read through Revelation again, it struck me that John points out that in the midst of even the bold judgments, the people are cursing God and refusing to turn to God. And I thought, well, could they even turn to God at that point? But well, what you're saying, they might have a chance yet, or they would have. So I, again, what we're dealing with here is, is kind of like the tension between sovereignty and free will. Um, the Bible teaches both. And as I've talked about in my Calvinism series, um, but we don't have the mind of God. We don't live in the realm of eternity. We live in the realm of time, space, and matter. And so from our perspective and based on the authority of scripture, we can say whosoever will may come. Anyone can be saved, all 7.5 billion people. We know theologically, however, from God's perspective that, you know, God has elected some. And, but that's a tension that is irreconcilable. Romans 11 uh, teaches us uh, in the context of, you know, God choosing the nation of Israel as his chosen nation. At the end of that section, uh, Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So we, we can't really understand it. We can't make sense of it. It's not so much that someone who has taken the mark of the beast can't be saved. It's that someone who has taken the mark of the beast won't be saved. So we don't, we, the Bible doesn't make it a cause and effect thing. It's just describing the reality at that time. So, but remember, uh, there, you know, what, what, what's remarkable about that passage that you just referred to in Revelation 16 is just the, the hardness of man's heart and the utter, even in the, even in the most uh, re revealing circumstances, even when they can see firsthand the the power and might of Almighty God being poured out on earth, people will nevertheless reject Him and not come to Him. And uh, so, yeah, it's a it's a powerful uh, passage, uh, and you see that again and again that people just are unwilling to come to Him. But I I think the the issue of the mark of the beast sometimes, you know, confuses people because especially a lot of you know non-studied Bible teachers that kind of sensationalists that like to talk about Bible prophecy. And I'm, you know, on uh, platforms with them all the time and they don't understand grace. And so they don't understand how that doctrine of grace fits into the big, you know, picture. So they just make the mark of the beast a, a, a cause and effect thing that, you know, if you take the mark of the beast during the tribulation, you're going to hell. And if you don't, you're going to heaven. Well, it's not that simple. I mean, that's not the 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 uh, delineator 
according to scripture, and we read about this at the great white throne, the delineator is, have you trusted in Christ? Not your own works, but have you received the free gift? Mm -hmm. So it, conceivably, there will be people who never took the mark of the beast during the tribulation, but they still go to hell because they never believe the gospel, right? Yeah. It's, the Bible doesn't say that everyone will line up and either you take it or you don't. But Antichrist is going to do everything he can to make sure that everyone in the world takes the mark. But uh, he's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. You know, he can't guarantee that everyone's going to, you know, do that. So uh, there will be people who maybe never took the mark, but they're still unbelievers. But what we can say with certainty, according to scripture, is that there will not be any believers who take the mark. That's what Revelation tells us. Thank you. That was good. Well, to piggyback off of that a little bit, um, I've heard maybe the sensationalist uh, prophecy teachers, uh, some of them have said that the mark will change your DNA so you are no longer human and Christ came to die for humans. Where does that fit into any of this or is that conjecture? Yeah, that's a bit of a confusion of, of categories. Um, so I talk about in my in my new newest book, uh, Volume Two, Great Last Day or uh, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume Two. I have a whole chapter on transhumanism and Satan and the Luciferian accomplices have been working for centuries to try, really for millennia, to try to figure out a way to create life to. Right. to mess with God's highest pinnacle of creation, which is mankind made in the image of God. So that goes all the way back to Genesis 6 with the angels who left their proper domain and so forth. So they are absolutely trying to mess with human DNA so that they can create eternal life, create a being that will live forever and have no moral accountability. Um, Satan lied to Adam and Eve in the garden uh, when he said, uh, you will not surely die. And Satan, uh, you know, obviously uh, brings death, but he's trying to, you know, deceive people into thinking they don't have to die, that sin has no consequences. And so uh, the, the mRNA, you know, vaccines and some of the stuff that they're doing now, which I deal extensively with in volume one of that two book series, um, it, it's related to a potential mechanism for tracking everyone on earth because you know they they have the technology now to put tiny microchips and tiny computer operating systems within our bloodstream that can then be used for tracking uh, but i think a better candidate for the technology behind the mark of the beast is the central bank digital currencies that i talked about a couple of weeks ago at a conference and and it's also i address it in this new book uh, whereby they're going to literally have some type of implanted mechanism. It could be literally part of a you know vaccine. We don't know the delivery system, but one way or the other, they're going to have a, a, a chip of some kind that is within us that can be tracked, that can track everywhere we go on the globe. It can be turned on or off. It, it's all of our means of exchange and transactional ability is going to be tied to that CBDC, the central bank digital currency. If they don't want you to shop within five miles of your home, you're not going to shop within five miles of your home. If they don't want you to travel, you're not going to travel. So I think when people talk about changing our DNA versus, you know, the mark of the beast, they're kind of conflating two satanic uh, agendas right now that it may or may not be connected, 
by the same technology, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. Well, aren't they already tracking us through like our phones and our GPS on our vehicles and through cameras at intersections and stuff like that? Absolutely. Yeah, I've got a whole chapter on global surveillance and the uh, police state. Uh, however, uh, it is possible to uh, you know bypass that if you completely go offline. If you you know don't have a cell phone on you, you don't. Uh, you're out in the wilderness or in the mountains of the Rocky Mountains somewhere where there are no cameras. Uh, they they could find you. They have the technology to find you through heat sensing radar through satellite images. If they really wanted to, it's going to be tough to, to hide, but they're not tracking you. That's what's different. So, but with okay. the new system, the beast system that he's going to implement, uh, you it'll be connected to your body. It'll be within you and there'll be no way, you know, to, to hide from it. Um, so, uh, you know, Jesus warned. Now, again, we all, I think, know in this group that we're not going to be here during that time. Uh, once the Antichrist is unveiled, we will have already been raptured. Um, but those left behind, uh, if they get saved by believing the gospel, then they're going to not, you know, they're going to they're going to have a tough time hiding out. But they won't be tracked, you know, by their, you know, in, in some kind of interjected uh, mechanism because they won't take the mark of the beast. But they could, they're still going to be hunted down for sure. I have a question. Can y'all hear me? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. Hi. Okay. Nice. My question relates to the fig tree generation and timing. I have um, felt very strongly for the last eight years that we are running out of time, running out of time. It has been so impressed on me. And I'm a Jewish believer. I have friends in Israel. I have family in Israel. The the, the Holocaust survivors are dying off. This generation is dying off. And I, I just, I, I'm always astonished that we're still here. I, I don't understand how that time frame relates. Where are we at time-wise, do you think? If you, know, if you have an estimation, because I just have this pressing and it gets stronger and stronger. And every year I just keep shaking my head saying, I cannot believe we're still here. We talk about it all the time in our group. Yeah, so I appreciate the question very much. I agree with you completely that time is short and and we are you can't it can't possibly be much longer. But that has nothing to do with the fig tree. So let me explain what Jesus was saying there in the Olivet discourse. Uh, and by the way, we have uh, a whole uh, series that we did on this uh, that's available at our store. But we all it's also a whole chapter dedicated to it in my book. But uh, in, in what lies ahead. But so I think what we need to remember is that Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, which happened Wednesday night, the night before he was betrayed in the garden. So this is just hours before he's crucified. It's the last major sermon that he gave. The disciples, as he came into Jerusalem, were expecting, Luke tells us in Luke 19, that the kingdom to come immediately. They had been obsessed with the literal inauguration of the kingdom throughout Jesus' three and a half years. They wanted to know who would sit where, who would be the greatest, what would they get when they get there. Jesus promised them they'd sit on 12 thrones. So they were very much anticipating a literal earthly kingdom in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And they were right. What they were wrong about, as Jesus tells us in Luke 19, was the timing. And he said, there's going to be a delay. 
that the, the cross has to come before the crown, suffering has to come before honor, and he was going to be crucified for the sins of the world, rise again, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and then go away for some period of time to receive the kingdom, <clears throat> and then come back. So uh, the disciples, by Wednesday of Passion Week, uh, when Jesus had cursed the fig tree, he had had harsh words to say for the uh, Jewish leaders there in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, the disciples were really getting concerned because they're trying to reconcile in their minds their mistaken notion of the kingdom about to happen with Jesus saying, for example, that the temple is going to be destroyed and not one stone mm -hmm. will be left upon another. So they ask him in the midst of all that, Lord, well, you know, if these if this is going to be the case, then when will you be coming? What will be the sign of your coming? When, when will this age end and the kingdom age finally come? And Jesus' Olivet Discourse is, is his extended answer to that basic question. It has nothing to do with the church. It has nothing to do with the rapture. The rapture was not even unveiled from the mind of our eternal creator until the next day in the upper room, when in John 14, Jesus alluded to it by telling his closest disciples that he was going to go away to prepare a place and bring them to be where he is. That's an allusion to the rapture. But the rapture, we don't find out till later in the New Testament during the church age, was a mystery, something previously unrevealed. So people make a mistake when they try to insert church age truth into the Olivet Discourse. Mm -hmm. So basically, you have to put yourself in the mindset of a future nation of Israel waiting for Christ to return during the tribulation. And so Jesus begins the Olivet Discourse by reminding them not to be deceived. There are going to be many people coming, claiming to be the Christ. Don't be deceived. And then he, he gives several signs. Uh, they asked, what, what will be the sign of your coming? So he gives them the signs. And these signs uh, actually track perfectly with uh, the sealed judgments in Revelation 6, one-for-one one equivalent. So the Olivet Discourse is entirely focused on the tribulation period. So he gives all these signs in general, and that's where he says things like, you know, the one who survives to the end is going to, you know, be delivered into the kingdom. The one who, you know, doesn't, won't. He says that the gospel is going to be preached to the uttermost parts of the earth, then the end will come. Then beginning in Matthew 24, verse 15, he zeroes in and gives even more detailed signs, like the abomination of desolation. And he says, when you see this, you know my coming is very close, three and a half years away. And then he, he talks about his return it, 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 in verses 30 and 31. He says, uh, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Then he regathers Israel into the land supernaturally in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 30 and Isaiah 27 and many other passages. And then after giving answering their question, then he shifts into application mode, as he often did in his sermons. And he begins to challenge his listeners to do something with what he had just said. So here's where he mentions the fig tree that you asked about. He says, so mm -hmm. learn this parable from the fig tree. So it's a parable. It's an illustration. Mm -hmm. when, when the branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. That's, that's true, right? When we see leaves begin to bud in the spring, we know we're getting close to summer. He says, likewise, when you see all these things that I've just told you about, then you know that my coming is near, even at the doors. In fact, he says, the generation that sees all these signs will be the generation that sees my return. So, uh, you know, a lot of our brothers and sisters that don't, don't believe in a pre-tribulational rapture and don't understand the distinction between Israel and the church, 
they hang their hat entirely on Matthew 24, 34, where Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will be by no means pass away till all these things take place. But he's not speaking there of the generation to whom he is speaking. He's talking about the generation about whom he's speaking. And by the way, this is should be self-evident to any student of Scripture, because every prophecy, every prophecy eschatologically was given to one generation, but speaking about the future generation that would fulfill it. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 7, did that generation see the virgin birth? Of course not. He was no. speaking to them, but he told them about what would happen later. Micah's prophecy, they didn't experience the Messiah coming to Bethlehem, but he was speaking. So there's always a present-day generation that is the recipient of the prophecy, but it's not fulfilled till later. So what Jesus was saying here is he's speaking in answer to the disciples' question. They asked the question. He's saying, okay, you want to know about my return? Well, let me tell you, you're going to see this and this and this and earthquakes and cosmic signs and persecution and and false prophets and then you're going to see the abomination of desolation and when you see all that you know i'm coming and then there's going to be this sign from east to the west and i'll come back and when i come back i'm going to regather israel into the land supernaturally and then he says so watch for those signs and you know the generation that sees those signs will be the generation that sees my return so uh, we believe the Bible teaches the imminency of the rapture. Imminency meaning could happen at any moment. So there's no there's no prophecy that has to happen before the tribulation. But nevertheless, Jesus also tells us in Matthew 16 that we should watch for the signs of the times. So back to your point, which you put so articulately, we absolutely see the stage being set. That's the whole premise of my two books, Spirit of the Antichrist, is John tells us the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in the world today, and we know what the Antichrist is going to do because we have a lot of real estate in Scripture that describes his activities, and Daniel, and Revelation, and Second Thessalonians, and others. So if that spirit's already here, the closer we get to the Antichrist, capital A, we ought to see an uptick or an upsurge in his characteristics. So I just created a list of seven characteristics of the Antichrist and then examined you know, after 15 years of studying uh, the Luciferian conspiracy, examined everything that's going on in the world, and, and lo and behold, it's it's un, it's striking. It's unmistakable. We're seeing this rise in in Antichrist activity. Oh, yeah. So I, if you ask me my personal opinion, mm -hmm. I I don't think uh, we're going to get out of the 2020s uh, before the Lord comes back, and I know that. That's their plan. I mean, we know unmistakably that's the Luciferians' plan. I have a whole chapter entitled The Luciferian Timeline, where they tell us in their own words exactly when they expect mm -hmm. to usher in the one world system. Um, but we don't have the mind of God. God's the ultimate arbiter of the timetable. He may decide, you know, no, nah, I'm not ready yet, you know. He, uh, so, but if I'm they not. get their way, we're looking, at, I think, soon and very soon. That, that's my best guess. So later in Matthew 24, when he goes into two will be working in the field, one will be left, one will be taken. So following your logic that this has to do with in Matthew 24, it's following the tribulation. How do how do you explain that? I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I've never heard anybody say that, by the way, just so you know what you what you just said. Oh, yeah. No, no, it's I've my never heart. heard that. So that's it's, kind of revolutionary for me. Yeah, and I appreciate that. 
Yeah, it's um, definitely the majority view among dispensational scholars that this is totally Jewish in nature. Uh, Andy Woods, uh, uh, Mike Staller, Tommy Ice, all the top scholars of our day you know, hold this view. But that doesn't mean it's right. So you're doing the right thing by looking at the scripture and uh, trying to understand it in context. So uh, actually, the context is very clear. Uh, so after giving the illustration about the fig tree, he goes on to give several other illustrations and calls to to expectancy, to, to look out, to, to I call these the watchfulness challenges. And so he says... Uh, just as in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Um, now, let me ask you, who was left behind on the earth after Noah, and who was taken off the earth in judgment? The righteous were left behind. The unrighteous were taken away. Mm -hmm. So I realize that in English, it sounds kind of rapture-esque, and it doesn't help that back in the 70s, Larry Norman wrote a song about this passage claiming it was the rapture. And so those of us that are my age or older can kind of remember him talking about this as if it's the rapture. But that would be exactly opposite of what mm -hmm. happened in Noah's day. The ones taken away were taken away in judgment. And by the way, Jesus uses the same exact analogy uh, in, on a different occasion a couple of days earlier in Luke chapter 17. And in Luke uh, chapter 17, let me find it here. He makes it very, he makes it more clear because he uses a different word. He says, uh, let me find it here. Uh, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Mm -hmm. they, they ate, they drank. In other words, they were going through life, ignoring the warning. And then he says, and the verse 27, the flood came and destroyed them all. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. in Matthew's account at the Olivet Discourse, he says the flood came and took them away. And so a lot of Bible teachers mistakenly say that in Matthew, he's talking about the rapture, and they say, you know, the, the ark was kind of like the rapture, and it rose up mm -hmm. above the earth, and then it came back down. But that, that's not at all what the text says. The text says the flood came and destroyed them. And, and indeed, if you for the analogy to make sense, you know, in Noah's day, the ones left behind were not the unrighteous, they were the righteous to inhabit the earth. And that's exactly what's going to happen during the tribulation. The unrighteous at the end of the tribulation will be cast into the lake of fire off the earth. The ones left behind, he will say, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. So there's, they're left behind uh, to inherit the kingdom. The ones taken off the earth, other ones taken away. So yeah, I would encourage you just to kind of think through it, look at it in context again. Um, but the church doesn't exist at this point. That's another thing. There's no church. And Paul tells us it was a mystery. So you can't have Jesus explaining truths that, you know, it would involve a people that has not been unveiled yet. So um, so that's that's kind of my take on it. But I would encourage you to kind of study through it. And, and uh, uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding, I think, about that whole passage from the fig tree on. Yep. Thank you. Yeah, that was clear. That was good. Yeah, yeah that really helped. Yeah. The taken away would be the flood. Um, so just to guess at what you're saying, you don't think we'll make it out of the 2020s, so that would be 2030 at the latest, minus seven years of the rapture. Is that 2023? 
So we don't know, as you look at the chart that I have up on the screen, we don't know how much time takes place between the rapture and the start of the tribulation. Oh, that's right. That's true. Yeah. So some scholars like Arnie Fruchtenbaum, which in full disclosure, I, do you guys know Arnold Fruchtenbaum? Mm -hmm. Okay. I love him. He's a dear friend. Mm -hmm. I've worked with him many times through the years. Um, but uh, he holds the view that you were describing that the rapture is what's being discussed there. So that just goes to show you that even such a great scholar as Arnie Fruchtenbaum is not always right. But anyway, <laughs> I'm, I'm just teasing. Uh, I'm, it, there are you know people out there that hold different views on that, but I think it's pretty clear. But he holds regarding the gap between the rapture and the Antichrist that we're dealing with seven years or more, like multiple years. Um, I heard Andy Woods say one time, he doesn't necessarily think this is the case. He was just making a point, but he said, you know, we could be talking 50 years. I mean, we really don't know. My gut tells me that the chaos that ensues after the rapture is, is going to cause a hasty coming together of these alliances that I described mm -hmm. at the outset of our uh, discussion tonight. And that yeah. we're probably dealing with, you know, months, not years, but total speculation. That's why I put on the screen of unknown length, because we really don't know. Um, but back to the question about the 2020s. So, the, again, totally speculative. I can't cite chapter and verse because the rapture is oh, in it. Okay. We don't know when it's going to come. But here's my top few points of evidence, if you will. Uh, number one, it's just the sign of the times. I mean, Satan has conquered every conceivable frontier. He's conquered language. He's conquered gender. He's conquered marriage. He's conquered all the major institutions of creation. Uh, he's knocking on the door of creating life through transhumanism and artificial intelligence. If you read that chapter in my newest book, it will stun you what, you know, what they're saying and doing. I have an interview transcript in there of a Google engineer with an AI that will blow you away. Halfway through the reading it, you'll forget you're talking to an AI. It's really unbelievable. Mm -hmm. So he's knocking on the door and we know what happened last time Satan attempted to create life and, and play with the human genome. Uh, God immediately brought judgment. And especially in light of Jesus' reference to the days of Noah as a illustration you know that that's the the reality let me see it by the way if i have that chart up uh while i'm explaining this but uh the reality is uh the, in the days of noah noah was out there every day warning hey the flood is coming judgment is coming get ready get right you know do what you can and everybody ignored it and i mm -hmm. think the same thing is yeah. going to happen this time and then, and like Jesus says in Luke 17, and the flood came and swept them away in judgment. So um, destroyed them all is his exact phrase. Apolumi is the Greek word there. So whatever happens to the people taken away, in my mind, uh, they're destroyed unless, and this would have to be the view of those who take the opposite view, Jesus is using the same analogy on two different occasions to mean exactly opposite things. And that would be strange that in one case, he's talking about the flood destroying people. And in the other case, he's talking about the flood saving them on an ark. And that just doesn't add up to me. But I don't have the chart that I was hoping uh, that I had. But, you know, the reality is, um, you know, we see things happening all around us that to me appear that we're getting close. That's number one. Number two, we know what the Luciferians themselves are trying to do. We have their own documents. I, I, I cite Alice Bailey, who was a theosophist, who was a disciple of uh, 
Helena Blavatsky. She channeled a demon. I talk about this in the book uh, and wrote 10,000 pages almost 100 years ago. Uh, and she admitted channeling a demon. She tells us his name. And almost 100 years ago, 15 times in her 10,000 pages, she, she talks about the year 2025 mm. as their target year for ushering in the new world order. Um, she, uh, we, 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 they, the uh, Luciferians believe that every 100 years, there's this uh, council of gods, little g, that meet to decide what comes next in their plan. And they've been tracking this since 1425. The last one was in 1925. And at that time, they were saying by the year 2025, they want to have the one world order in place. And then you couple that with the UN and the World Economic Forum and some of their goals with Agenda 2030 and Agenda 21 before that. You know, we see them rolling out this global digital currency. Uh, we see them rolling out uh, global tracking systems. Uh, so we see a lot of precincts reporting, so to speak, uh, that sort of indicate things are coming to a head. Um, and so, and then there's other, anecd all of this is anecdotal because the Bible doesn't tell us when the rapture is going to happen. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you guys, have you heard much or studied uh, much about the comet Apophis that NASA is tracking? Yes. Well, that's Tom Horn's work, right? Um, yeah, yep. Yeah. He wrote a he wrote a book about it, but a lot of us have been talking about it for years. I, I spoke about it five years ago, um, but I've gotten some recent information on it. Uh, back then, basically, you have the official narrative that says there's this comet that's scheduled to crash into the Earth. Or, uh, the official narrative is this comet is scheduled to come very close to the Earth, possibly even close enough to for the debris to hit some of our satellites by the year 2029. Well, there were whistleblowers back five years ago when I was talking about it that were saying that that's not true, that they're hiding the real truth, that most of the calculations have it being a direct hit. Well, now we've got more whistleblowers that have come out. And so what's interesting about that, it could be wrong. I mean, they're all science. You know, we certainly know how science can be wrong. <laughs> anything in the last couple of years. But uh so, but but what's interesting about that is, of course, one of the trumpet judgments is this uh, meteor wormwood that's going to crash into the earth and destroy the water. Well, let's just have some fun and, and play speculation here. What if this <laughs> Apophis is the fulfillment of wormwood? All right. Well, if if that's 2029, that happens roughly three and a half to four years into the tribulation, according to Revelation eight. So you go back four years from that. Now you're at 2025 as the start of, you know, the tribulation. Now, this yeah. is the stuff that sensationalists love. And I certainly don't want to be accused of being a sensationalist. But I do find it strange that the, the enemy, the dark side, has been talking about the year 2025 for almost 100 years. And now we have potentially a... a yeah, you know, a, a meteorite that can hit the earth, you know, four years into tribulation. So I don't know. It's there's just a lot of things that make me say if I had to guess, I'd say, yeah, I think we're, we're it's coming soon. Um, but, you know, we don't know. We just don't know. We got to be ready. You know, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, that would all come to repentance. And if he wants to continue things as they are in the hopes of seeing more and more people come to faith, then we may have to endure some rough times ahead. 
Have you all seen the movie <clears throat> Don't Look Up? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, I always find it interesting that uh, entertainment, even the Simpsons, I mean, the things that they, they tell us ahead of time, it's just incredible what they know. And if you pay attention, the things you might actually recognize mm-hmm. biblically. Yeah. They, the, as you may know, Susan, uh, the Luciferians have a credo uh, that they must tell us what they're mm-hmm. going to do before mm-hmm. they do it. That's and, right. Uh, they don't, they don't tell it wide out, right out in the open. They usually, it's really subtle, it's hidden, and you don't know mm-hmm. when they find out about until after it, you know. Uh, so, for example, um, and I don't remember if I talk about this in volume one or not, I uh, gave several just really unbelievable examples of this, but one of the most notable ones is uh, if everybody remembers after 9-11 and the immediate aftermath of it, all of our leaders, George W., Condi Rice, uh, the Colin Powell, were all out there on the news station saying, quote, like they were reading from a script, no one could have possibly ever predicted that hmm. ter- Arab terrorists would hijack commercial aircraft and fly them into the World Trade Center. That, you know, that was kind of part of the excuse for us allegedly mm-hmm. being asleep at the wheel no one could have predicted that mm-hmm. well except for the fact that six months before that on prime time television a spinoff of the uh movie the or of the television show the uh i think it's a twilight zone anyway the details are in my book they had a pilot an episode that aired in prime time the show ended up only having one season i think there were a total of six episodes but the, the pilot episode, the entire premise of the episode was Muslim Arab hijackers hijacking commercial American aircraft <laughs> and flying them into the World Trade Center. So wow. everybody in Hollywood apparently knew about it because they wrote a script about it. So, you know, it's just it's just unreal. Uh, the other one uh, um, that is astounding, and you can validate this too, but the Oklahoma City bombing of the uh, Murrah Federal mm-hmm. Building. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, of course, that thing is, the, the official narrative is completely false uh, all, on all sides. If you just go back, there's plenty of research done on that. But but what's what to me is the smoking gun is that Governor Frank Keating, who had just become governor of mm-hmm. at the time, retired FBI agent, uh, big time into the Justice Department prior to becoming governor of Oklahoma, um, his brother, I forget his name, but it's in my book, uh, is a novelist. And prior to that bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City, he had written a novel, a spy novel, about uh, a homegrown domestic terrorist named Tom McVeigh, can't make this stuff up, who bombed a federal building in Oklahoma City. And not only that, he was captured because he was pulled over by an Oklahoma State trooper for having a uh, malfunctioning taillight. Of course, it's exactly what happened with Timothy McVeigh. So, and it was reported in mainstream media. I cite, I quote one of them in the, you know, like one of the mainstream, I don't know if it was New York Times or the WAPO, but they said, you know, in the couple days after the, the explosion, they go in a striking you know, uh, uh, coincidence, uh, Governor Keating's brother, blah, 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 wrote this novel, and the main character was Tom McVeigh, and, mm. you know, 
What a what a coincidence! That's all they said. They didn't. Look to it further. To me, that's that defies logic. So anyway, you're right. I think uh, you know it's one of those things that Satan uh, loves to play games and loves to kind of sit back and laugh and say, "I told mm -hmm. you so," but we missed it. Yep. Can I ask a question about the books? Which book? Um, well, both of them. You, there's a lot of subjects and a lot that you wrote on. And I was wondering, of all the things that you wrote on, which one do you get the most pushback on or disbelief? Uh, that's a great question. Um, so uh, if you haven't read the books, it's Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1, Volume 2. Volume 1 came out in March. Volume 2 just came out October 31st. And it's really the culmination of 15 years of very serious, like all-encompassing research. I mean, we traveled the country, we went to major places, did interviews, saw all the key locations of key events, and and just you know, I went down the rabbit hole big time. And so uh, we're basically giving manifestations of the different spirits of the Antichrist that are prevalent today, and definitely cover a lot of ground. Um, I can tell you that earlier on in my uh, ministry, when I first started speaking about this, one of the ones that I got pushed back on was geoengineering. Oh, in yeah. fact, I in my first book on this subject, which was 10 years ago, 2012, uh, called The Great Last Day's Deception, um, I was speaking at conferences around the country uh, promoting that, and I had one conference that uh, after I spoke, they edited out my section on geoengineering because they just said, oh, there's no way this can be true. Well, of course, here we are 10 years later, and it's widely known and accepted. You know, everybody knows about the government is, is funding it. They've had congressional hearings about it. There's private corporations. You can just Google it on the web and find companies that show you how they retrofit aircraft with these nozzles to spray particulate metals into the air, aluminum, strontium, barium, you know, you name it. Um, it's, it's just, everybody just accepts it. So uh, the latest book, I think, well, really with volume one, if you read the preface in volume one, I talk about how I kind of first woke up to reality and started comparing it to scripture and, and going down this road. And I make a reference to 9-11 in there. I don't have a section on 9-11 in the book because, of you know, well, for obvious reasons, but that preface alone has caused some people to not, you know, read any further. Oh, yeah. um, and so 9-11 is a big, I think, sticking point still, which, you know, doesn't matter that thousands upon thousands of architects, engineers, uh, airline pilots, uh, six of the 10 original 9-11 commission members and, and many other experts have all, you know, come out and shown that the official story can't possibly be true. It defies the laws of physics. Um, the official story of 9-11, of course, is that 19 millennials wearing turbans were, managed to keep the mightiest military in the history of the world at bay for two and a half hours on a bright sunny day by flying with impunity four planes, three of which crashed in I'm sorry, two of which crashed into buildings, causing three high-rise buildings to collapse into the... <laughs> so, I mean, it's just absurd. Um, and and so it's not... I'm not suggesting what really did happen. We may never know, okay. but we can say with certainty that the official narrative is false. So um, 
you know, I think that I know one interview that I did on TV, they they didn't cancel the interview, but they asked me not to bring that up, which I wouldn't have anyway. I hardly ever bring that up. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's an issue. The UFO and UAP and paranormal chapters actually are surprisingly, I, I have not gotten a lot of pushback yet, although the book's only been out three weeks. So mm -hmm. four weeks, no, three weeks. So I expect that some people will uh, maybe take issue with that, but I, I would just say, read it. If, you, if all you do is read the chapter titles and you make a prejudgment, well then, okay, that's not very fair. If you read it, study it, come to your own conclusion and disagree, that's fine. That's all I can ask for. But, uh, you know, I could certainly could be wrong on a lot of things, but I do try to connect the dots and make sure that I document everything and draw some conclusions. I thought it was going to be um, how rigged the voting system is. Oh, yeah, actually, you're right. That that one's I still get pushback on that. Yeah, uh, I was listening to um, uh, the podcast that you did with uh, Life Clips with Kim. Yeah, yeah. And you burst her bubble, she said, <laughs> when you mentioned about DeSantis not being uh, the projected image that, you know, we've all been given. Yeah. And by the way, I'm not, I, I think I made this clear on that podcast. I, I don't know for sure whether he's skull and bones, but there's a lot of evidence that he is. Yeah. I have not taken the time to study it you know, in depth and try to come to an educated conclusion, but a lot of people I respect have. And I think there's, you know, some evidence that he is. Um, but either way, regardless of that, my point is, you know, when, when will we wake up? I just, I don't understand how after 2020, when we had the most rigged election in, in human history, incontrovertible evidence, smoking gun evidence everywhere you look, and yet every federal court, including the Supreme Court, basically says nothing to see here move along. Yeah. Well, that should tell you something. So, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I do get a ton of pushback on that. I, I spoke at a conference recently, the one where I spoke on CBDCs, and one of the people that was supposed to attend that, it was actually a one-day kind of a seminar, and I was one of two speakers, and there was about, I don't know, 50 people, 60 people in the audience, but one of the ones that was supposed to attend was the chairman of the Republican Party in that county, and ha having heard or read something that I said, they canceled because they just you know, they still think as long as we elect enough Republicans, you know, we can we can change the world. And so good luck with that. But you know I have a question. Um I listened to that same podcast that Mike just referenced as well. And I can believe pretty much I, I don't want to believe it about DeSantis, but I could pretty much believe everything at this point. But I was really kind of stumped with a little um, remark about Charlie Kirk. Really? Could you elaborate on that any? Because did I say something about him on that? Um, no, I think, I, think, I think she did. And then yeah. you were like, yeah, Charlie Kirk, too. Or something yeah. like that. No, no, I've talked about him other places for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, several things. First of all, he has said publicly that Kenneth Copeland is one of the greatest preachers of our day, and we all need to listen to him. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, that's... Secondly, <laughs> he, he's very, he's very, uh, I mean, let me, let me back up and say, with any of these conservative pundits or, you know, public figures like a DeSantis or a Abbott down in Texas or a Charlie Kirk, you know, they're going to say things that we really resonate with and we like, mm -hmm. and they're going to have a lot of good philosophical 
viewpoints. Uh, and in many cases, they really believe it, kind of like a, a, a Tucker Carlson, you know. So I'm not suggesting for a second that some of these guys, like the ones we just mentioned, are lying or duplicitous or somehow agents of the Luciferians. Uh, it's part. It's called controlled opposition. You know, they the Hegelian dialectic. They they love to give voice to those of us on the right who have conservative values. But what I am saying is that the notion that somehow going at it through politics is going to be a solution is naive. That our system has been completely and utterly controlled by a shadow government, the Luciferians, for at least 100 years. Now, I get into that in chapter seven, which someone just referenced of the book, and I talk about the history of America and the founding of America and whose fingerprints are on the founding of America, and I briefly trace the history, and there's no doubt that the Luciferians have been integrally involved in this country from its inception, but it, what, what it, when it really kind of became a, a problem and really rose to the fore was at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, early 1900s with Rockefeller and uh, Carnegie and, and many others. Um, so, uh, because what happened was they, the Luciferians, they thought that that the this new world, that's why they called it the new world, by the way, was going to become their beachhead for establishing Satan's one world system. And so they came over, they slaughtered the Indians, they, you know, they they set up camp, if you will. And what they failed to take into account is the mighty power of God working in and through Christian men and women who believed the gospel and were ready to make a difference in this world. And uh, so very quickly, it kind of got away from them. And so our country became the greatest country ever. It became, did more for advancing the gospel. And, and so when you think about from 1776 through the 19th century, for the most part, we were a moral nation. We were raising our children in the Lord. Not everyone, of course, but even unbelievers back in the pioneer days had a healthy respect for providence, for a creator. Um, and, and so uh, it just, God used this country in a powerful way. But eventually the, you know, the Luciferian says enough, enough, said, said enough is enough, and we're going to take this back over. And so they set in place a concentrated, orchestrated plan to take over education, medicine, science, politics, and every sector of this country, and it's just been getting worse and worse and worse. So I guess that's the big thing that I, I wish more people understood. We, we share so much in common as, among conservative Christians who believe the Bible, but very few connected all the way to the top. And the stuff that we see happening today you know it's not biden's fault it's not obama's fault it's not the left's fault or the progressive's fault or the woke fault or the you know it's it's somebody's up there pulling the strings this is all intentional and and we know that from scripture we know psalm 2 a thousand years before christ uh, david talks about how you know, the leaders of the world are conspiring together to break off god's control and his binds and his cords and usher in a one world system so i just wish more people you know like people will call it the deep state especially since trump you know kind of popularized that or the global elite and other 
aspects and they kind of get that things are not really the way they appear but they don't understand just how controlled it really is at the upper levels okay mm -hmm. yeah the q was part of that kind of um like controlled opposition too right totally. it was a complete psyop uh, to you know to convince people that you know even up to the day of inauguration that you know, the troops were going to swoop in and arrest Hillary and arrest everybody and cart them <laughs> off. And, you know, I, by the way, I still get emails from people that think that's still happening today. I mean, literally, they, just wait, you just wait. He's, he's waiting for the right time. And then, and then they're going to swoop in and take over the government. They're just letting Biden do all this. You know, it's just like, and, and I forget where I talked about it. It's, it's not in the book because I chose not to put anything about Q in the second volume. And by the time the first volume, came out it was it was still not it was you know before the 2020 well actually it wasn't before that but anyway i just didn't put it in there but um you know i i cite somewhere that it goes back to i think it was an italian psyop that they kind of mirrored and planned and it, it's it's there's nothing new oh. they just use the same template to roll out q oh i didn't know that yeah and yeah. they use it to discredit too, because, you know, I know like Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, I guess she kind of was, you know, dabbled in it a little bit years before and they brought that back up as to discredit her. Right. You know. Yeah. And, so. you know, it's, it's, there's always a little bit of truth mixed in. I mean, there's no question, as I talk about in chapter 13 of my new book, you know, the satanic ritual abuse, the pedophilia, the child sacrifice, all of that stuff that's going on is, uh, <laughs> is out there. Uh, it is, is true. You know, the whole Pizzagate thing is true, <laughs> but, um, but then they connect that with, you know, with, they love to discredit the truth movement basically yeah. by, by putting this information up. It's COINTELPRO. They did that back in the fifties, sixties, and seventies when they infiltrated all the major movements, the, you know, uh, and, and, and fomented unrest and riots and stuff. That's, that's part of their plan. So other questions about how this relates to scripture, because uh, I mean, I could talk about this all night, but I'd love to, you know, to yeah. also kind of see how it fits into God's, God's word. I, I have actually a revelation question. Um, and I, I've always been a pre-tribulation believer. Um, but you know, sometimes I come across other views and I think I'm strong enough in my pre-tribulation view to kind of listen and, and, and take in some of the stuff, but then it starts sounding like, wow, you know, this could be true too. And it totally throws me off. And, um, my question is about the, um, I think it's in revelation six about the souls under the altar. Um, I know that I've heard anyways, a lot of pastors say that um, during the tribulation, there will probably be less people who come to the Lord than we think, because it's going to be harder to do. Um, people will be killed, you know, and they said, I think one of the quotes is, um, if you can't live for Christ now, you're not going to be able to die for Christ then. So to me, that suggests a smaller group than what we see in Revelation 6, where it's multitudes uh, of every tongue and trot. Yeah, exactly. And so my question is just, can you give me something to give me, to hold on to that we are not the souls under the altar? 
some kind of evidence. I mean, I know that Jesus is the one opening each seal and that comes after he starts opening the seals. But then I've heard like Ryan Peterson and there's a, a couple others who kind of believe that, you know, the rapture doesn't happen until after the seals. And so, um, yeah, so um, that's a that's a great question. I'm just looking for my revelation chart here. Here it is, just so we can have it for context. Um, so the, the reality is the pre-tribulational rapture is built upon a hermeneutic, a, a Bible study method. And that Bible study method is, is a consistent, literal, grammatical, historical understanding of God's word. So according to God's word, the church and Israel are two distinct programs. They, they, they don't, you know, the church has its purposes. Uh, and I, I list those in the book. The, the Israel has her purposes. Uh, Israel is the apple of God's eyes, chosen people. The salvation is of the Jews. Jesus is the ultimate seed of Abraham, capital S. Um, and it's from Jerusalem that uh, Christ is going to reign and rule in perfect peace, righteousness, and justice someday. So Jerusalem is God's people. But the church serves a unique purpose today, too. And part of that purpose is not only to bear witness to the gospel today. I mean, in any age, God has his envoys, his key people that are supposed to be proclaiming the good news, uh, and that's us today. Uh, but another purpose is to provoke Israel to jealousy. You know, Paul tells us this in Romans, that, you know, what we see happening today is a microcosm of what life's going to be like during the kingdom. It's not identical, but it's very similar. It's a, it's a foretaste. The church, if we're doing our job and walking in the Spirit, following after Christ, we are a microcosm of what life will be like when Christ is literally on the earth. And so, we, we, uh, we, the purpose, according to Paul, is to provoke Israel to jealousy so that the next time around when he's coming, they'll have a, a context and they'll say, man, you know, I want that. I want that intimacy. I want that closeness. You know, I want that spirit written on my heart. So, uh, so when you understand the distinction between Israel and the church, you understand that the church had absolutely nothing to do with God's 490-year program as outlined in Daniel. So if you see that chart on the screen, uh, John Walvoord mm -hmm. rightly describes Daniel as the key to understanding Bible prophecy. So what happened in Daniel, happened in Daniel. is that you know, about 500 years before Christ or so. Uh, is anybody else getting feedback here? We don't see that uh, chart. Oops. Sorry to stop you. Oh, it's, it's not, huh? No. Not broadcasting. All right. Somehow we lost our, uh, oh, I think I know why. But anyway, there, now do you see it? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I've been kind of putting charts up here the last few minutes, and it's apparently you haven't been seeing them. Sorry about that. Uh, somehow I probably hit a button that said stop sharing. But anyway, so this, what you see on the screen is, is a key prophecy. Daniel, uh, during the exilic period, uh, kind of realized that the, that the people of Israel were coming up against the end of the 70-year prophecy of Jeremiah, when Jeremiah had said, you're going to be captive for 70 years. So he prayed and he asked God, what happens next? And God says, oh, I'll tell you what happens next. I've given you 70 years. Now what comes after that is 70 times 7, 490 years, called the 70 weeks prophecy. The word week in Hebrew is the word Shavuah. It means seven-year period. For example, in Genesis, it's used when uh, uh, Leah, uh, I mean, J uh, Jacob had to work one Shavuah, seven years, to get uh, 
Rachel, and then he pulled the switcheroo on him, and he got Leah, and then he had to work one more Shabuah to get Leah, I mean, to get Rachel. But anyway, that's the that's the context of the word. So 77-year period is 490 years. And we know that that started, according to Daniel's prophecy, with the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Uh, it ended with Christ, the Messiah, coming, the Prince, uh, the Messiah. And then Daniel says, as you see on the screen there in green, that after that 483rd year, a couple of things are going to happen. The Messiah is going to be cut off, which he was, and the temple is going to be destroyed, which it was. And then he says sometime after that, the, the uh, Antichrist is going to sign a peace treaty that will start the clock ticking on that final Shabuah, that final seven-year period. So the reason I like this chart is if you look at the words in yellow, they're time words in the Hebrew text. Okay. And he tells us from, let's say from A to B is 483 years. Then some things happen. And then, you know, because he says after the 69th week, so after the 483rd year. And then he says, then sometime after that, the tribulation is going to start that seven-year period. So Everything in green relates to Israel. Everything in—I mean, everything in blue relates to Israel. Everything in green relates to the church. And we don't—we just don't see the church having anything to do with God's plan for Israel. In fact, the prophecy says seventy weeks are prophesied for God's people and His city. So I—you know—we're not God's people, the Hebrew children, and we're not God's city. So uh, you know that coupled with the, the doctrine of imminency. See, if you put the rapture. Uh, Brooke, anywhere inside the seven-year period, it destroys imminency, right? Because you can't, mm -hmm. if you know it's going to happen three years in, well, then like we would know it's not going to happen tonight, right? But the right. doctrine of imminency is taught. Uh, I don't have the time to go into making that case. We have a video on the doctrine of imminency. I have a chapter on it in the book, but it's clearly taught. Why else would, would you know, Paul uh, talk about things like, uh, you know, eagerly expecting the Lord's return. Well, you wouldn't tell someone to eagerly expect it if you know it's not going to happen for three and a half years. <laughs> you would, you know. Yeah. So the language of the New Testament speaks <clears throat> of the blessed hope. The, you know, it's the Greek word apekdekamai to eagerly await. And every time it's used, I think it's used seven times. Every time it's referring to the rapture. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, you know, we eagerly await our Savior from heaven. Well. You wouldn't, to eagerly wait means to wait expectantly as if it could happen at any moment. Why would you do that if you know that several things have to happen first? Right. So just, so I think the doctrine of imminency really, as well as Daniel's plan, really shows us that, you know, you can't have the rapture anywhere in the book of Revelation. A lot of other things too. You don't see the word church mentioned anytime after Revelation 6. <laughs> so mm -hmm. if you go back to our Revelation chart. Revelation is actually one of the easiest books in the Bible to outline. Can you guys see that? Yeah. yeah. Yes. So, you know, he it's the revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter one. He gives letters to seven historic churches that were in existence in the first late first century. And then chapters four and five are all setting the stage for that, that powerful outpouring of God's wrath in the final day of the Lord's wrath, that seven-year period. It's variously referred to in scripture as uh, the time of Jacob's trouble, by the way, that Jacob is Israel. So why would the church have something to do with the time of Jacob's trouble? They wouldn't. It's called the day of the Lord's wrath, the great day of the Lord's wrath, the 70th week of Daniel, 
and so on and so forth. So chapters four and five of Revelation are actually explaining what gives God the right to pour out his wrath on the earth. You know, who is worthy to open the seals of God's wrath? Uh, and it's called a theodicy, a justification for what's about to happen. And then, of course, you know, you see starting in chapter six, no reference to the church all the way through the seven years, and then the kingdom comes at the end. So I just, uh, I know there's good people out there that disagree. Uh, for those who really study it and, and really base their views as best they can on the scripture and come to a different conclusion, you know, I respect that. I'm, I'm not, I can't argue that. Where I get upset is for people that say, well, nobody agrees. It's too confusing. Nobody can really know. So I'm just going to be a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out. They act like it's complicated. It's not complicated. You know, it's very clear when you study it. Um, I spoke with a guy recently who I really respect, pastor of a very large church, godly man, really knows the word. And he, he believes in the pre-wrath view that Christ is going to come back prior to the outpouring of God's wrath. Well, he's right. We agree on that. Where we disagree is what constitutes the wrath of God, the prophetic wrath of God. I believe the whole seven years is the wrath of God. It's called by the Old Testament prophets, the great day of the Lord's wrath. He believes that it starts sometime later. And he has a different view on Revelation 6. Revelation 6 really is the key. I think you brought that up uh, because you know, by the end of chapter six, when all the seals have been unleashed, people are already hiding from the wrath of God. Uh, he takes it, and, and those who hold that view take it, that uh, what John was saying there was the wrath is about to come. It hadn't come yet, but it's about to, and they're saying hide us from it because it's about to come. Well, I take it different. It's past tense. It's already come. Uh, the, the, the tense of the verb in the Greek is past tense. So I respect that. I mean, we, you know, either way, we agree that um, the rapture is a distinct event from the second coming, that it's for the church. We're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We're going to return with Christ to establish the kingdom. So, you know, it, it's uh, it's important. I think it holds, it, it, it's really kind of ties everything together from a consistent hermeneutic perspective, but there's, there's room to be gracious about it with people. Thank you. Ron, you wanted to ask something? Another whole subject, the gospel. I really appreciated the teaching on what the gospel is, and then especially what the gospel is not. We as believers, like my wife and I, grew up in the church, became, you know, were saved young, and uh, have fallen into the trap of uh, having people accept Jesus into your heart. And all these different things that, well, that's kind of pushing in the right direction, but really isn't the gospel. And so we, I really appreciated your teaching about exactly what the gospel is and exactly what the gospel is not. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, I spoke yesterday, uh, today's Monday, right? Yeah, I spoke yesterday at Plum Creek uh, in our series through Acts on repentance, the truth about repentance. And um now, if you haven't watched that, I encourage you to watch it. But even after that, and we had a packed house uh, yesterday, people came up to me and said, you know, man, I've never heard it taught that way. I've never understood repentance. And they, they were still kind of trying to get their hands around it because, as you say, we've been taught culturally so yeah. many wrong things 
that you know when you really get back to the bible and and you say 160 times the new testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone i mean that's pretty clear right so but yet we we use these uh catchphrases like invite jesus into your heart ask him into your heart surrender your life to christ give your life to christ and i challenge people all the time find me one place in scripture where it says you'll go to heaven if you give something to god give your life give your heart give anything do we get to heaven because we give something to him absolutely not there's one giver and one receiver god's the giver we're the receiver for god's love the world that he gave his only begotten son and then john 1 12 to as many as received him to them he gave the power to become the children so we don't give we come empty-handed saying Mm -hmm. nothing in my hand i bring simply to the cross i cling so but my first book years ago uh, was called Getting the Gospel Wrong, and I, I have several false gospels in there, one of which is what I call the puzzling gospel, and that's where I would put things like invite Jesus into your heart, because it's just, the Bible never uses that terminology, it's confusing, why not just say what the Bible says, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved, you know. Well, I always go back to the thief on the cross, and I find that the simplest. I mean, to me, there's no easier way to describe how simple it is. I mean, there was nothing he could do. He was within moments of dying. And that simple belief. And he said, you're going to be in paradise with me today. I mean, man, how glorious is that? (laughs) Yeah, he never was baptized. He never had to show any fruit. That's right. He didn't do he the ABCs. He didn't do Jesus all these other was. things. He just believed. He recognized this this sinless man was the savior of the world and believed. Yeah. Jesus said, suffer the little children come unto me. Uh, I think childlike faith is really the key. Uh, that's the reason it's so hard for adults who don't know the Lord to get saved. Because by the time you get to be an adult, you figured it out. You think you can do everything yourself. You don't need help. You don't you don't even know what trust really is because you want to do it yourself. You know, you can just work harder, be better, do more, you know, act righteous and you somehow you can do it. But uh, children, they understand faith. They understand what it means to trust somebody for something else. So you tell a child, you know, Hey, you're a sinner and on the road to hell. And if you don't do something about that, you're going to be in trouble. But guess what? Here's the good news. Jesus Christ loved you so much. He died for you rose from the dead, and now he offers to you the free gift of eternal life. If you'll just trust him, the one who took your place, if you can trust in him to give it to you, he'll give it to you. And a child goes, wow, that's great. Yeah, I'll trust him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and later people will say, well, he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't mean business. He didn't, he's got to know what he's getting into. He's got to bring something to the table. He's got to make a pledge or a promise or a commitment. No, no, no. That's not how you get saved. If you could get saved by making some kind of pledge or promise or commitment, Jesus didn't have to die a cruel death on the cross. That's right. Well, thank you guys. Is there any other questions or comments or? Well, oh, did somebody have one? Go ahead, Teresa. I was reading Revelation twenty two seventeen and. I said, wait a minute, who's the bride? The spirit and the bride say come. Mm-hmm. I just read that verse, but I never understood it. Can you help me with that? Yeah, so the bride is um, a term, you know, marriage is a metaphor that's used a lot of times in scripture, you know, for a lot of different, in a lot of different ways. Um, for example, we know the church is the bride of Christ, according to Ephesians, but did you know that? 
Israel is also called the bride. In mm-hmm. fact, in the kingdom, Jerusalem is going to be renamed Beulah. Remember the old gospel song, Beulah Land? Well, yeah. what does Beulah mean? It means married in Hebrew. So I just think that sometimes we we make the mistake of looking at a word and, and thinking it has a technical meaning, um, but I'm not sure that's always the case. And I think in Revelation 22, 17, uh, I'm looking it up here. Hang on. Whoops. Trying to get to my Bible. In Revelation 22, 17, as you said, you know, the text says the spirit and the bride say come. It's a great invitation, by the way, to, you know, end uh, the uh, text with, um, you know, end the Bible with. But, I, you know, since he, we've just seen the marriage of the lamb in um, my online, I mean, my Bible software is kind of slowing down because my memory gets eaten up when we do these Zoom conferences. But uh, in Revelation, what is it, 20, I think, or 19, when we talk about the marriage of the Lamb, uh, I think since the near context there is the church, my best guess, uh, Teresa, would be the church. Um, uh, so, but, you know, who knows? I mean, we could see, you know, could be a lot of different things that, uh, you know, that he's referring to there. Could be the bride in general of all you know because now we're in the end of the bible we're at the end of the new heavens and the new earth it could be just a general statement for all that has been made right with god because remember god repeatedly says in the old testament the new testament uh i will be your god you will be my people that's the ultimate statement of intimacy and rightness with god when all things are made new i mean he is our god and we are his people now but we're there's a special intimacy attached to that statement and so I think that's what he's probably talking about there. Uh, my best guess would be the church. Okay. Oh. All right. Well, the, church, the church then, is it a merger of Old Testament saints, New Testament, uh, New Testament believers, uh, millennial saints, and um, tribulation saints? Do they all merge into the bride then? At the end there? No, I don't think so at all. I think we will have our identity forever. And our identity in the present church age is in Christ. We are in Christ. Uh, and so the you know, in the eternity, you'll have the Jews, the church, and the nations. And oh, okay. So the when the millennium ends and we enter the new heavens and new earth, nothing changes except that we're our location. We're no longer on the old earth under the curse of sin. It's destroyed. God recreates uh, the new heavens and the new earth in sinless perfection. So the Bible comes full circle back to a pre-fall Edenic state and, and all things are made new, but that doesn't change who we are. So I, there, I don't see any merger in scripture of the different peoples of God. I mean, we all experience the same intimacy. We all experience the same glory and, and uh, eternity with, with the creator, but I'm not going to be merged and become okay. and so forth. So when I read it today, I, I took it kind of as we could give that invitation to people to come to Christ. You know, the spirit and the bride, that's us saying, come, 
come join us, come drink this water of life freely. And yeah. I had never read it that way. I just always kind of skimmed yeah. over it, but it was a personal challenge to me. Yeah, I think that's that's a great application, Teresa, is that, you know, the Bible, I've often said, you know, the Bible ends with this great, you know, come drink of the water of life freely. But, you know, if you really stop and think about it, it's a challenge to us today as we await his return to be busy doing what we're supposed to be doing. You know, it's, it's a great commission, really. So. I just wanted to say thank you, too, for your um, <clears throat> the Calvin um, Calvinistic, Calvinistic study, too, because I kind of got sucked into that. And you did a really great job of um, presenting how you know, Calvinism is not, it's not right. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. You're very kind, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, it really is a dangerous place. And, and um, you know, again, we, I'm not being personally attacking of Calvinists. I have a lot of friends mm -hmm. that are Calvinists, but I just think they're dead wrong when it comes to the clarity and accuracy and urgency of the gospel. And uh, so, yeah, that's a 10 part series we just did. Uh, you can still find it. Uh, on our website, uh, if you go to videos in the midweek series, I just started a new midweek series last Wednesday on the greatness of God, which mm -hmm. I'm really excited about. It's uh, we're going to look at some of the attributes of God, and you know, in the last year, I've given Satan a lot of attention uh, because I think we're supposed to study that and be aware of the spiritual warfare. But uh, boy, I need I need to focus on God a little bit, and so that's kind of what we're doing on Wednesday nights now. Okay. I have one more quick question. Well, maybe it's not quick, and I'll apologize if it isn't. But as a Jewish believer, and I also know Brooke has a Jewish background, I am curious about your perspective on um, God's plan for the Jewish people, because my understanding is he has corporately dealt with them historically. And, you know, there are scriptures that say, and all Israel shall be saved, you know, and, and I don't know about Brooke, but I suspect that she spends time witnessing to Jewish friends and family members as I do. And I know even Teresa's had recent opportunities. It's amazing the amount of opportunities that are opening up. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, so a couple of passages that uh, we can look at. One would be Romans uh, 10. And let me see here if, uh, not to get too fancy, but it'd be nice if we were all looking at the same uh, Romans 10. Try that there. Actually, Romans 9. Let's go to Romans 9 30. And I'm going to see if I can share this. Uh, share. All right. Can you all see that scripture on the on the yes? Okay, I'm going to take off my notes here if I can. Okay, so uh, the passage you quoted a minute ago is from chapter 11, where Paul says, uh, uh, all Israel will be delivered. Let's see. Uh, look at verse 25. I do mm -hmm. not, for I does not desire, brother, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own opinion. Nope, that's not it. Hold on. Uh, yeah. Keep going. It's 26. Yeah, 26. There it is. And so all Israel will be saved. Remember, the word saved in the New Testament does not always mean eternally. 
Okay, it means to rescue or deliver. And I've actually done a word study. It's in the back of my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong. It's the, the word sozo, which is the Greek verb save, is used 108 times in the New Testament. And 58% of the time, it does not mean eternally. It means like physically, temporally, rescued from danger, sickness. So just to give you a couple of examples, uh, and again, more than half of the time, that it does not mean eternally. But uh, in uh, Matthew 8, when the disciples are on the Sea of Galilee and the storm arises and the, they go to wake up Jesus, and they say, Lord, save us. We're drowning. They didn't mean, Lord, give us eternal life, right? Mm -hmm. Frequently in our English Bibles, the word sozo is translated heal physically. So anyway, in this section of Romans 9 through 11, the word saved is delivered and is talking about delivering Israel into the kingdom. And so Paul says, you know, right now, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He means in part because there are Jews today who, like yourselves, who get saved. And Paul right. was one of them. So it's not utter and complete. It's, you know, partial. But he says, one day, all Israel, meaning the entire nation of Israel, will be delivered. And when will that happen? It'll happen when the deliverer comes out of Zion. That's a second coming prophecy, a second coming passage. So, uh, so now let's go back to chapter 9, and this goes to your question about the sort of the juxtaposition between the nation and individuals, right? So Paul says in chapter 9, uh, verse 30, what shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, you know, these dirty, rotten, filthy Gentiles, that they actually got righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel who pursued the law of righteousness, in a little bit he's going to say zealously, I mean, these guys dotted their I's and crossed their T's, yet they don't attain to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but by the works of the law. Mm -hmm. So then he goes on, remember there were no chapter divisions in the original text or verses. Mm -hmm. So he goes on and says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, the nation, is that they may be delivered. He's not talking here about eternal salvation at this point. He's just saying, look, I want Israel to get her kingdom as much as anybody. But he says, before they can be delivered, before they can call on the name of the Lord and be delivered into the kingdom, remember he quotes here in verse 13, uh, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's from Joel 2. That's a mm -hmm. second coming passage. <laughs> and, and, and Jesus tells us that, when he returned, he told us, in, he told the Jews in Matthew 23 that you will not see me again until you cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So right. in other words, the first time they came, he came, they cried, crucify him, crucify him. The next time they'll cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There was, of course, a remnant in the first century that cried, Hosanna, Hosanna. But, you know, those cries quickly changed within a few days. So Paul, I think, is alluding to the same thing here, that in order for national Israel to be delivered into the kingdom, they have to call on the name of the Lord. But before they can do that, individual Jews have to believe. Because look at what he says here in verse 14. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Mm -hmm. See, so but Romans 10, 9 and 10 is actually a very misunderstood passage. Um, he's talking about Israel. He's talking about national deliverance. And he says, if you, you know, remember who he's talking to here. My heart's desire for Israel, he says in verse 1. So he says, if you, Israel, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, then you'll be saved. 
because it's with your heart that you attain the righteousness necessary for salvation, and it's with your mouth, I mean, righteousness necessary for justification, eternal salvation, and it's with your mouth that confession is made unto deliverance into the kingdom. So this is not talking about two different steps necessary to get into heaven. This is talking about the nation of Israel. They must first personally believe and be declared righteous, for with the heart one believes and is righteous, Romans 10, 10. And then with the mouth, confession is made unto deliverance into the kingdom. How do we know salvation there is talking about national deliverance? Well, as I showed you a moment ago, in the same context, he, he quotes Old Testament passages about the deliverer coming and ushering in the kingdom. So I think the answer to your question is that uh, those Jews who believe the gospel during the tribulation will be the ones who are supernaturally regathered into the land. And at that time, they will cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blesses you who comes in the name. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118.24, which we all sing as the fun little chorus, is not talking about today. It's talking about the day of the return of Christ. That's the day that, that Psalm 118 is talking about, the second coming. And the Jews are going to cry out and, and say that. So, yeah, I think uh, it all comes down to personal faith. Everybody, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter, has to personally trust God for salvation. Abraham believed God and was declared righteous. Mm -hmm. um, but nationally, those who do believe uh, will be, you know, caught up. So when he says all Israel will be delivered, it doesn't mean all in the, in the comprehensive sense. He means all as opposed to part. So right now, you've got you know, uh, a remnant, as he says, there's a remnant according to grace there in verse 5, 11, 5, but someday not just the remnant, but the entire nation will be saved. Mm -hmm. But it presupposes that, you know, the nation that gets into the kingdom, the members of the nation that get into the kingdom first believe the gospel. So there will be Jews that take the mark of the beast during the tribulation. That's why Jesus repeatedly says, be not deceived, be not deceived, be not deceived. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Make sense? Thank you. Mm -hmm. It was actually a very short question. My answer was just what was very long. <laughs> but you're probably used to that after the last couple hours here. <laughs> that was a great clarification on verse 10, because it seems backwards that they're first, uh, that they have to confess with their mouth to be saved. And I've not been able to defend that passage other than comparing it with other passages. Yeah, and, so uh, no, I think I, I've got a two-volume video series. Uh, it's called uh, Accredited. I forget what it's called, but it's on Romans 10. Uh, and okay. I explain it in detail with the verses on the screen. But yeah, you know, well, Romans 10, 13 is not a, a, an eternal salvation passage. Nobody gets saved because they call on the name of the Lord. Mm -hmm. How many unbelievers have died in a accident and in the battle yeah. of death cried out oh my god does that mean they're yeah. in heaven today of course not and you get saved by trusting in god not calling on god but you get delivered into the kingdom if you're a nation of israel by calling on the name of the lord that's pretty clear it's very clear now thanks yeah all right well i'm gonna jump off uh yeah, thanks for your time thank yeah you. no thank you i i thank really your, uh, thank your wife and family as well for letting you do this tonight yeah. <laughs>
My pleasure. No, you guys are a blessing. It was really, truly, truly my pleasure. I hope I didn't monopolize too much time, but uh, appreciate you guys. Stay in touch and uh, feel free to email me with questions and uh, be love to do it again sometime. Thank you for what you yes. do. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. You bet. My your, pleasure. your books are very good. Well, uh, can you call my mom and tell her? <laughs> give me a phone number I, I will i told her you know someday just give me time i'll i'll amount to something but uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. uh I'm, I'm just kidding i'm just totally kidding but anyway thank you guys